My name is Lauren Higgins, and I'm born in Denver, Colorado. I work with a network called Impact Hub, and just previously was working for eight years with a festival called Communiki. So that's me. Nice to meet you all. Can you tell me a little bit about what Communiki is, like what it what it is from its from its root? Yeah, I mean, so Communiki. And and granted, I wasn't the main director all the time. Uh, Kate Lesta, my very dear friend and collaborator, uh, really carried that role for all the years of its existence. Um, but Communiki, uh, Communiki started just as an interest in wanting to work with more experimental sound artists and musicians that maybe were only being exposed or listened to or experienced on the coasts or in Europe. Um, but the a, a few select folks in Colorado started to really appreciate these sounds and decided that they would pull their money together and create enough of an experience and environment around having them in, in Colorado uh, that it gained momentum and that people started to trust Communiki to put off to, to put one-off shows together uh, to have a new kind of sound, uh, experience. And then as that gained momentum, then it made sense to us at the time to make a festival. And Kate and I were sitting around a fire, uh, a campfire in California on a, a long road trip. And we started talking about a festival. And the my favorite memory about that wasn't just this idea about selling tickets and having more people enjoy the musicians but it was actually around the social element mm. and the social experiment of what the dynamic and the environment of a festival meant between the artists and the participants and so I think that this actually for me now eight years later we just laid the community festival to rest this year um, the spirit of community will still live on and in, in particular Kate and I knew that it was time for it to go because the social experiment didn't feel as live. The party still wanted to go on, <laughs> but some of the deeper work that we were more interested in doing as artists had shifted. And so we felt like it was a good time to let that go. So anyway, Communiki started in 2008 as a festival that brought together variety of adventurous musicians and artists from all over the world, but particularly the Americas and some places in Europe. Um, and it varied between a three-day to a five-day festival. And it became a really nice community of artists over the years, some who would play multiple times, and then lots of new sound experiments to really good dance floors. So you are one of the key organizers. And does that feel like that's your art form in a way? <laughs> I love that you brought this up. You know, when you were first asking me to do this, um, my first identity is not as an artist. I've been an artist my entire life in different ways, but that is not my, my work in the world. 
Um, I do work directly with artists all the time. (laughs) Uh, But yes, organizing is my art. I found that very clearly inside of Communiki, that actually the power that and the the form the artistic form that I really wanted to get good at was convening. I wanted to help create the environments that inspired people to create or to connect in powerful ways. And so experience design and thinking a lot about um, what does it actually take for for ideas to be born between people in a space or in an event? That was definitely and still is my creative endeavor that I really care about. So do you think that Communiki was um, kind of the, the, the growth point for that, for you to discover that, oh, wow, this is an art form. This is a way for me to express myself and get off as an artist. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I, I distinctly remember, so I went to school for organizational development, which is kind of like the people side of business, if you think about it that way, because I'm fascinated about how groups work. And that we all work, but why don't we create places that are powerful, dignified, and interesting places to work instead of really lame and draining? And I thought a lot, everybody's working, most people aren't happy with it, what's happening there? So I'm in school for this. And then simultaneously, I've always had an interest, I've always been a musician, I've always done a lot of different kinds of like small art pursuits. And then I've always had this community where I'm like, yes, I love eccentricity. I love people who are really exploring the edges of things. And that's how I found myself inside of that group. So then when we started organizing this festival, it was almost like five years into that, I had this whole other skill set around convening, bringing people together, exploring edge ideas, working with edge thinkers, edge artists that were really like curious about bringing their new ideas to the table. And once you convene that over time, yes, it gave me incredible insight that I'm still using today. And in fact, that's become a big reason why I'm hired or I get the jobs that I do is because I developed a sensitivity with these communities through the Community Festival over the years. And so I got a really rich vocabulary, a rich experience for how to work with all these diverse communities and I still use it now. It's been, yeah, that was my training. Those are my training wheels. <laughs> <laughs> and you say um, sensitivity. And I think that's a very important word to take mm-hmm. into consideration when talking about artists and organizing artists. And can you talk about some experiences with relating to artists in a sensitive way and organizing them and getting them into gear. I think, yeah, so this this is what comes up for me around the question around sensitivity and maybe what did I learn about that and what am I still learning? So in doing a festival, there's like, there's a lot of options. You can do a lot of things in many different ways. There's no real prescription, but two directions that I saw very obviously when I first started was that you can be, you you can pick up the DJ at the airport uh, and you can send them to their hotel and you might high five them at one point, maybe not make sure that they have their meal tickets and then get them back home. And who knows who's going to drive them there, whatever. Very quickly though, what it was just our inclination, I guess, that, that part of the reason why we were inviting these people is because we also wanted to create something with them. This came into this sense of sensitivity as well, and also respecting the sensitivity 
Um, and what did that mean? Well, it meant that instead of just kind of transacting with them, like you come, you play for us, this is a simply professional endeavor. There isn't actually always a lot of sensitivity in that. Because what we really wanted to do was ask the person what they wanted to create there. And we wanted to be a platform for them mm. to make that. So actually, it's more complex. But And we ended up, when they would arrive to our festival, welcoming them into our community, making sure that they felt like a friend, if that's how they wanted to feel, and really feeling that... Uh, People were there to listen to them very explicitly about how their performance should go, the environment that they would like to have, and that we were also wanting to create the environment so that people could commune with them and really listen or experience their artwork in that way. And that that was our main job, was to really create that. So that level of sensitivity, I got, I got used to that and the receptivity of the artists to being heard and also that we were actually creating with them that we were caring for the environment so that what they had to bring was something that could really land or take off, however you wanted to say it, right? So this is, this is part of that, and I think that, that that has really helped me now in working with many cultures around the world because similarly to artists convening like a glo global cultures together, you have to have a similar sense of improvisation, sensitivity to the space, and lots of listening. And that was really helpful. There's a lot of sense and sensibility in that as well. And so when you say working with people um, and cultures from all over the world, that's what you're doing with Impact Hub. That's right. And can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I guess I um, I was really looking for what kind of work could I do that could combine this interest that I have in entrepreneurs and their impulse to change and to start things and to prototype and to yeah create enterprise, which they're on fire. And then how can I work with all these incredible genius artists who are inventing sometimes their own very personal worlds or sometimes who have really incredible experiments and critiques about society? Like how does all of this stuff fit together in me? And um, I found Impact Hub actually on a short business trip I took to San Francisco many years ago, maybe four or five years ago. I went and I worked inside the Impact Hub there. And what I saw there is that it was this incredible environment. There was all of these businesses that were focused on making a positive impact in the world. Lots of very innovative sustainability focused or socially focused enterprises. And people were really having these great conversations about innovating the economy and really creating really cool businesses. And so I thought, this is interesting. And about a year later, uh, someone that I'd worked with in the past, actually uh, in a biennial, um, said, hey, I'm going to start an impact hub in Colorado. Would you be interested in helping me open that and do some events for us? And I thought, I'll give that a try. I mean, I'm interested in it. And time went on and I found it to be one of the best contracts that I had done. I found the perfect place for myself. And so basically the impact hub 
so you all know what it is. It was started 10 years ago. This was our 10-year birthday this year. Congratulations. Yes, it's a very cool community. Um, it was started in London 10 years ago. And the basic question is that so all kinds of people have ideas about changing the world and making the world a better place. But where do, can they really go to make those ideas real? Mm. What kind of infrastructure do they need? What kind of community do they need? What kind of resources do they need? And what kind of organizers and hosts and conveners do they need to bring them together so that they can really do that good work? So this started the first Impact Hub. At that time, we were just called Hub. Uh, first Hub was in London, and then the second in Brazil, and then in Amsterdam, and now we're in 72 countries. Fom Fen just opened up. Wow. Accra in Africa. So it's all over the world. And basically, it's a physical building filled with incredible entrepreneurs and community, people who go there every day to work, either individuals or teams. And they all have these projects it could be or businesses in multiple disciplines anything you can imagine from water issues to health to arts to community to education anything you can imagine there's a, over 11,000 members worldwide and so they have every kind of business you can imagine so there's a lot of people worldwide now and there's 72 communities so it spread like wildfire and it's basically because people need a place to organize to do the work that they want to do so it's between a co-working space an incubator and a social change center are they pop up or are once once they're up they're up and established in the in the in the city in the place in the country? That's a great question. Yeah, they're they're permanent structures, so they 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 usually go through big renovations. It's a big deal to make a hub. Um, so what is what's your participation in that? Like, mm -hmm. what what's would, my role? Yeah, yeah. So there's about it's actually very cool how the hubs actually work. They work in a democracy. So each of the founders from the Impact Hub, each hub has one vote. So the big changes that happen in the network globally, like what direction should we take and how should our brand be, all different kinds of decisions are voted on. And many years ago, that started to get more complex, right? Because now there, it wasn't just 15 people, it was 70 and it was getting complex. So they, they decided to pool their resources together and they made a company and that company is called Impact Hub Company, and it's the global team, and that's the company that I work for. And so I was, I was with the company when there was only about four of us, and now wow. there's about 20. <laughs> um, so there's quite a few. And my role on the global team is I work with all of the Impact Hubs but I coordinate some of our larger projects. And specifically, I organize our global events where we all get to come and learn from each other because the people in Brazil have really cool things to share with the new teams in Africa, have really special ideas to share with the guys and gals in Singapore. And so I bring them together and help organize our global, global events that way, global and regional events. And then the other thing I do is what we call practice. And practice is our communities of practice. And that's essentially what are the most important practices inside of an impact hub that help us be innovators? And what I do is I help people exchange that knowledge between 
all of the impact hubs. So that's about how do you work with your members? How do you create partnerships? So essentially, I help them make webinars. I help them write articles or share resources that allow the impact hubs to learn from one another because they're all doing very innovative stuff. So my team kind of helps to be the highway between the knowledge for the impact hub so that they can share their best innovations because they're all thinking of amazing things and they really can learn from one another, but they're far away. So I kind of am a bumblebee mm. between them to help cross-pollinate. And how ideas. is how is that um, crossing over with language and cultural barriers and how do you navigate that? Yeah, that's well, it's really interesting. Um, whew, with that sensitivity again, mm. I mean, in general, um, so most of the global team are bi or tri or multi multilingual in in many ways. Uh, so we all have a different sensitivity around working with different cultures in that way. We also um, attempt to have the most distributed, diverse team that we can. So um, most, a lot of my team members live in Europe, but then I also have a team member in Colombia, some team members in Greece. I mean, we're all over, and so we we also have a diverse team. So this helps too because our perspective on how to solve problems or when we encounter an issue we can get somebody's diverse opinion about it uh, immediately so it's difficult there's a lot of misunderstanding especially online oh yeah it's brutal in fact you know (laughs) so there's a lot of misunderstanding there's a lot of delay but then there's also a lot of great insight that comes from it so after years of that you just kind of start to relax, or I did, really, with like, okay, that's just a very different way of looking at that. And then you can just bring it up very simply. If you're humble, you can bring up differences. It's not about so th- whether it's right or wrong. So can you give me an example of how you would, how you would humbly bring up a difference or like um, interact with that kind of a situation? Sure. Um, okay, well, sometimes if there's misunderstanding, what I've noticed is that you can just take the charge out of it, right? You don't have to be in a position. You know, conflicts get worse when you're positional, like me against you. So for me, when I'm, you know, if I'm dealing with an email or I'm dealing with a big project and there's so many cultures involved and I can see that a a really strong conflict is arising, sometimes it's just okay to name and just say, hey guys, I'm noticing that we're really looking at this in a different way. I'm curious about why you look at it that way and let people start to talk about their perspective Mm. so that they can have ownership with their perspective. And then it kind of relaxes the situation. I'm noticing that this is really different. Can you tell me why it's different instead of this is different and it's wrong? It's just, let me hear why this is different because maybe I'll learn something from that immediately. And then we can actually discuss it, right? It's something that we can play with instead of something that's right or wrong. And then we can say, okay, well, I'm noticing these are different, but this is where we have to go. We have to have this complete for 500 people in three weeks. (laughs) Bottom line. (laughs) Bottom line. So if we're seeing things so differently, how would we get there? And then I have them help me create a solution that isn't about us being opposite, but is about us working with our differences to still achieve a common goal. And that works really well because it's, it gets really, really, really tricky. And for example, I just worked with some teams 
that had a very different perspective on how uh, to share power. They were more in a top-down orientation in their team, meaning they were used to really having a boss that told them what to do. And that was the culturally and also their way of working. That was normal for them. Having lived in the United States and done all the projects and working with community in these more collaborative environments, I was not used to this. My normal uh, modus operandi was, hey, we have this goal. How can we do it together? And I would share like equal with my teammates. And this actually, they lost respect for me. Really? Because I was being more soft. And they were just, you know, simply, why aren't you being a good director? Why aren't you showing us what to do? So you can see, and we figured it out, right? Mm. But you can see how people perceive those things very differently. And it's it's a matter of being sensitive, but willing to go right in there and saying, okay, we're different. How are we going to work with that? It seems like this type of conversation is something that isn't really talked about. You know, like people are just put into these roles of organization and leadership without having that real like fluid language around how to how to deal with human beings. I love that you bring this up because, in fact, I was just having a conversation with my dear friend Kate, who I mentioned early on, and the art form of collaboration and of organizing humans is still very (laughs) cryptic (laughs) for most people. Some of us have studied it, and I am fortunate within Impact Hub to work with a lot of people who study organizing and facilitation and hosting. And But I realize how many projects, how many artists, how many people in our community suffer because they're, ba- they're part of organizations or groups that are kind of toxic and that they're not working very well and that no one's really caring for them in a very intelligent way because maybe we're not having the right kind of conversations. We don't know how to deal with conflict in a well way. We don't know how to share power very well. And all those things are really important Jedi tricks for knowing how to work with with organizing. And I think a lot of times we forget, you know, we're like, I'm an artist. I do my own thing. I've got my own pursuit. And then that's true until the moment when you actually have to interface or create something with other people. And then you recognize that that being with other people in a really beautiful way is also an art form. How do you how do you find that place? Like, say, like you are an artist who sits in your studio alone, and all of a sudden you're invite, invited into a massive collaborative project. Like, how do you cross over? How do, what what would be a, a something you could say to artists out there listening to kind of start that shift? I think the first thing I would say is don't take don't take it for granted. Uh, working well with other people, every once in a while, in a blue moon, it just flows easily. But actually, it takes a lot of work to do it well. And so don't take it for granted that it's just going to work well or that somehow your ideas are going to translate. I think this is one big thing. 
The other is that if, if you're not taking it for granted, then you're saying, okay, then what do I need to do? And it's really as simple as understanding what the collaboration is going to consist of, asking good questions. What am I here to do? What do we expect of each other? What am I responsible for? What can you count on me for? And what can I count on you for? And that starts to get the bigger picture of the collaboration clearer. So then what you can do, once you're clear, you can actually just do your work. And all the potentially crappy social dynamics, disagreements, injustices that happen all the time in, inside of poorly organized groups, um, some of that can go away or maybe all of it. And then you can just focus on being an artistic badass. that would be that's the idea at least that's the idea so um speaking of artistic badass do you have any ideas about how to deal with the artistic ego (laughs) (laughs) i mean i'm sure you've you've worked with artists from all over the world and some really large names and people who carry a lot of weight with them of who they are and their status and how, how have you learned how to interact with them in a way that allows them to uh, let go of that and collaborate with you? Or, or do you just let them be? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this is a cool question. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. Um, well, I think the most egoic thing you can do is try and be obsessed with losing your ego. <laughs> that's the first thing I, I just have to share like I really feel like um so I so I, I I mean I'm being silly but basically I am not asking them to lose their ego I would actually rather that they're very aware of their ego and it and so if I meet somebody who we would stereotypically say has a big ego, right? They seem really self-absorbed, perhaps. Um, they don't seem very sensitive to others. They're they're hyper needy, and everything is about them. They're very self-referential. Me, 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 me. Then, yeah. Then I I guess that that's very difficult to work with that. And all you can do in those situations is help lay some ground rules, like I was saying before. Like, okay, so this might be a little different than what you're used to. So here, we're a little bit more collective. And we don't look inside all the time. We're actually looking also to the community a bit. I would have kind of, I would be playful with them to introduce them mm. to a new environment, right? That's really all you can do with humans is is just try and check in about who they are, what their personality is, and then introduce them to maybe something new. And then just help manage what's in between, you don't know, you know, and so maybe so. And and many times, if a person has been that ego strong, they don't like it. That's okay. Yeah. Um. But it's fun to introduce them to something new, you know. And then I'm a little bit of a jokester, and then I get to have fun, and saying you need to lighten up a bit. Yeah, it sounds like humor is an important part of the process. Yeah, I guess I guess that's a part of the process. And then I guess the other thing is that. I also like to get really curious with them about why their identity is so important to them. I actually think that some artists that appear to be hyper-egoic, really intense, ego-driven people are actually some of the more interesting identity people I've ever met in my life. It's actually that they're very well-defined and that other people are intimidated by how defined this person is, so they call them 
that that person has so much ego. It's actually like, no, their ego is so well defined. It's, it's their art form. They're their own living identity piece. talk about identity for a minute because you've traveled all around the world now and you're working in such a global perspective I'm really curious about what your take on identity is like on a personal level and in a communal level and just interacting with identity oh I'm what's what's coming up for me is I don't think I don't know why I don't think about this a lot Or this specifically in the, in, you know, like this is not, this is not the torch I have right now. Like it's not a big, it's not a huge theme for me. But when I think about all the different cultures and all of these entrepreneurs and innovators and professionals around the world that we're working with, I do know that inside the Impact Hub, like, and generally like inside of community or community, excuse me, we were really focused on allowing people to explore their identity. And so it's a very positive relationship to diversity around identity, but I know that that's not the same for a lot of people around the world. And so I feel in a very perhaps privileged place, even though it's very global that this is a community of thousands and thousands of people that actually have a very flexible idea of what identity is. And they're like, oh, cool, that's how you identify? Awesome. Like, welcome to Hub, you know? And so there's a lot of openness. So I don't feel a lot of personal edge there. So I don't really know what to say about that yeah. besides that. That's interesting, though. And that, that idea of recognizing and acknowledging privilege, uh-huh. I'm in, I'm interested in that because... I interview a lot of indigenous artists from all over who don't necessarily come from a place of having a choice to identify as anything other than what they are. And so it's interesting you being out in the world and talking with all of these people and a lot of people have the ability to move between worlds a lot more fluidly than a lot of people I interview is like, this is where I come from, this is who I am, and there's no question You know, so I guess that's what I was interested in. I think, well, then thank you. Yes, because this is kind of the edge I was feeling, okay, is that we do have a more privileged conversation happening. However, because it's very global, I don't understand the context of all of my colleagues. I can't pretend that that would be, that would be terrible for me to say that I understand. I don't know what it's like to live in Africa, I know what it's like to live from where I'm from. But the thing that we do really trust is that we can come together and we can talk about our differences. And that actually changes our identity. Because when we identify as as a global network, this becomes part of all of our identity. And this is what has changed us. I don't need to pretend like I understand what it means to be um, from Romania. That's not appropriate. (laughs) It's not where I'm from, you know, at all. But I do get to meet the Romanians and I do get to learn from them. And then we become global together and we start to share an identity. 
I'm not Romanian, but we become part of a global network. And then our identity does shift. And what I've noticed inside, I mean, my friend Hermes, he's from Mexico, but he started the Impact Hub in Croatia. And people start to move all over the world. And this is how it happened, is they started to meet other people, and it started to shift their identity because we started to have more of a common identity. And I think that's what Impact Hub is, is that I can have my identity with place, and I can also have an identity as a human, and that's global, and I can probably share that with you. You might not understand my place, but there's also something common between us. And so, yeah, it gets much more flexible in that way because people stop only identifying with place, which is very important, but they also start to move beyond that. And they're like, wow, I can actually identify with other people around the world. And then that starts to change you. And do you think that that shift is something that is lacking in American culture? Do you think that we're lacking that globalized um, self-identification? So... Here's what I noticed, and this is one of the things that was most surprising for me traveling so much in the last years, is I would go to some places around the world, and they were very cosmopolitan, meaning lots of cultures, lots of languages, etc. And then I would go to other places in the world, and maybe just like in parts of the United States, those people don't know anybody from out there. They never traveled internationally. So there's lots of places that are similar to that here. It's not just an American thing. There are, humans are still getting used to having airplanes and leaving their home state or their home country. It's still not very common for people to travel much beyond their country. And so while that can create lots of negative perceptions about people if you haven't traveled much we all know right like mm -hmm. lots of racism lots of bigotry lots of xenophobia comes from that it's still very common and it's not something that we only find in the U.S. and I found it all over the place you know I get into a taxi cab here and the taxi cab driver is saying you know all those people that are invading our country and they're saying it all over the world I hear that taxi conversation all over the world humans are struggling with our borders and how to deal with this. It's an issue all over. And some places are more open than others. And he, and Americans, definitely. Yeah, we're, we're notorious for only speaking English. Do you get stereotyped as an American traveler? Oh, sure. That's funny. <laughs> Can you give me, a, like, a story? <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, basically, most people... Um, and I'm not offended by this because they all have, we all, all cultures have stereotypes. And so it's very funny when you can actually just play with them um, and not get offended by them. Uh, Cause most people don't mean anything bad by it unless they're being really malicious. Uh, they're just trying to understand you cause you're different. And that's the first place they have to start. But I've noticed we say a lot of things like awesome <laughs> and we're really enthusiastic about everything. This like hyper, we can do it attitude that does not exist in a lot of places <laughs> in the world. They're like, why are you so energetic? Why is everything so awesome? Why are you so positive? <laughs> this is very American from the perspective that I've heard a lot, like this go get them, pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of thing. This is, this is very funny. And I hear this a lot. <laughs> 
and I'm particularly like this. Well, you're a positive person. Yes, and I so so then there I every once in a while when I'm getting really enthusiastic, I definitely get the you're so American. <laughs> and that's just how they relate to it, you know, whether it's my friends from Eastern Europe or wherever. And then they all have a different thing. Like some like the Dutch generally are like American. We love Americans, but you're over the top. And then other cultures are like, we love how energetic you are. You really make me happy. And so it, it really depends. And this is obviously its own thing. Not everybody in America is like this. It doesn't matter. But yes, people are stereotyping all over the place. <laughs> it's very funny. I love playing with it now. At first, I was trying to be really kind of mousy and like never talk about it. And now I have a blast with it. You know, I'm like, I had three Germans, one Croatian person, four Africans and a Colombian on the call. And I'm loving all of the random behavior. It's great. So where do you think this whole experience of organizing on this um, global level is taking you? Or where do you want to take it? Nobody ever asked me that. (laughs) (laughs) What you gonna do? Yeah, what am I gonna do? I don't know that I'll actually change or, or leave this. I mean, leave working on this scale. One of the reasons why I was really excited about this and getting so involved um in in my team and with this network is that I'm I really like big systems I think it's really complex and I love the messiness and also the common humanity and beauty of working on this scale it's very new I mean it's only been in recent years that we even have the communication capacity to see or to speak to other people so regularly. I could have never had a job like this years ago. I spend most of my time Skyping with my teammates. I'm virtual the majority of my time. I really wanted to engage the world in these larger conversations about why are we here? What is our place? What is our story about being on the planet? And how can we work together to make that the most powerful story that we know? And so that's still important to me. I still want to work between all of these cultures and find that place of difference and common humanity to continue to see like how we can continue to live on the planet. And so I don't see myself, I, I see myself still convening, still bringing people together around these powerful conversations and doing projects that actually address real deep solutions that are needed. Because we're also making a really big mess mm. of the world. <laughs> we're doing amazing things, but we're also making a huge mess here. And so we need to really focus on those kinds of things if we're going to have, uh, if we're going to be a species for much longer. So I know I don't want to be a Debbie Downer, but I really care about that. I love riding that edge between our extinction and our total ability. And that is a global game that's rooted in our local wonderful communities 
And so I like that difference. And so I don't know what else I would do. <laughs> I feel like I'm really doing what I like to do right now. And I want it, but I want to keep working on a global level because that conversation feels really powerful to me. What kind of advice would you have for um, somebody who was thinking about approaching um, a large project like this as an organizer? Like, do you have any tips or tricks or things that you've learned that you wish somebody told you? <laughs> like little, little tidbits of advice from an organizer's perspective. Yeah, just just remember that organizing is also an art. And that the way that you bring people together, the feeling of it, the the approach, the tasks, the outcomes of your project that you want to have, just the, all of those decisions or the ones you make consciously or unconsciously. <laughs> it's all part of the art. And so I think, again, it's about being conscious of those things and not taking for granted that how you bring things together, that constellation is very important. It's important to how your art actually is delivered. It's important to how your art is experienced. So either you learn some really good organizing skills or you find people who have those sensitivities and you entrust them because if you want to be interactive in your art, like if you want to be a community organizer, if you want to activate communities through art, then you have to understand the art of community organizing. You have to understand how groups work, how power works. So invest. Invest some time in doing your homework. Learn, read about some of the best community organizers that have existed on the planet. Read about organizations or companies that have really cool ways of working with their employees, making people feel empowered, creative. Learn about organizing. It's an art in and of itself. And then you can decide as an artist how you want to play. Because that there's a huge social experiment that's created there, you know? It's not just you in your head any longer creating a piece, which is beautiful, but it's very individual. If you actually want to engage with the world, then do your homework mm. and learn how to engage with the world. Because there have been people out there who have a deep intelligence with this, who have written books, who have created beautiful examples of how to bring people together. Can you give me an example of a person who you admire in that, in that right? Sure. Um, actually, one of my super inspirations was this guy from Brazil. His name was Ricardo Semler. He, um, he was a young kid. His dad owned this huge company in Brazil. They, they made like shipping parts and, um, like big pieces for like bubblegum factories and like crazy industrial, um, company. But all the employees were totally unhappy. It was doing, the business was doing so, so, um, but the culture was miserable and the people were kind of in servitude in this crappy industrial company. And so his father said, I want you to take the company over. And Ricardo thought, oh my God, this is like the end of my life. I can't take over a company like this. I don't, these aren't my values. He's like a rock and roller and he's thinking, no way, humans, this sucks. Like, why would I want to take this company over? So he goes to Harvard and he studies business. He comes back. He's again confronted with um, 
taking over this business from his father, but he's feeling really radical at this moment. And finally he says, yeah, I'll take over the company. But then he said, I'm going to hire some of my own people. And one of the first people that he hires is actually this educate, like this amazing teacher. And this teacher at the time in Brazil had been changing the way that classrooms worked. The students were no longer just students. They were actually teaching each other. He was completely empowering his students to, to take over the classroom and to educate themselves. And that it wasn't just about listening to teacher. It was about understanding your own desire to learn and being excited. So Ricardo gets this radical teacher on board and they start to change the company. And now it's one of the most democratically run companies in the world. There are no bosses. There's hundreds and hundreds of employees. And they decide their own hours. They decide their own wages. They don't have managers in the same way that anybody else did before. He completely reinvented the way that work worked. And he said, you're an adult. We're going to treat you like an adult. Wow. (laughs) It was so powerful. So there are these stories all over the world of of people who have changed the way that day-to-day organizing works. And Ricardo Semler, his company is called Semco. You can read about it. There's lots of books, all sorts of stuff like this, articles, etc. But people like him, he said, we need to reclaim our dignity and our ability to work together as human beings. And there's a lot of these structures that do not do that. They're about making money. And money, making money isn't bad, but when they make us inhuman or not be able to relate to one another, for example, he said this employee needed to take his grandson to work, or excuse me, his grandson to school. Um, and he had missed out on an entire part of his grandson's life because he could never get the right shift to take his grandson to school in the morning. And then when Ricardo became the boss, he said, well, of course you should just change your schedule. Like why would you ever miss that part of his life? So he left it up to this guy to make his schedule with his fellow team so that he could always take his grandson to school in the morning and he would just come to work later. And they all negotiated it amongst themselves, and they said, okay, cool, I'll come in early, and you come in later. And that's all it took was a conversation. But in a lot of companies, we want to, like, we start oppressing people. So he was really about getting free and treating adults like adults. And this is the kind of stuff, and he started to learn about organizing in classrooms, in communities, in companies. And he said, what's the best things we could put together? And that's the art of organizing is really looking at it as a total canvas of what are the best things we could put in here to make the best experience possible. Do you think that organizing as an art form could be one of the um, major things that does save humanity? Hmm. I know it's like such a big thing to say, but it just, it just seems like such an, an important aspect and one that's so overlooked. Do you, do you feel hmm. like it has that much power I guess I don't I I don't know what to say about saving humanity (laughs) that's a good answer (laughs) um I think that we are deeply confused about a lot of things and very divorced from our sense of place and 
and we're and we are very egoic and self-important. We feel like our species is the center of the climate change debate. We're the hero, we're the villain, but we're always the center. Well, but we're also just a silly species that couldn't figure out its carrying capacity and is wrecking a lot of things. It we're very great and it's also um we need to turn it down a notch maybe for a minute there. So I work, I, I love the human project, <laughs> but I also have a lot of questions about it. I feel like organizing and letting people really know each other and have dignified choice and being adults with each other instead of being treated like children with each other. I think that there's a lot of positive things that come from that. And I think it can be one of the ingredients that helps us realize what our purpose is here. Because if we can't work with each other, it's very difficult. And so all of these things I'm sharing, they're examples of people or groups of people that just said, we need to do something different here. And we're going to do it differently together. And these are the rules the ideas, the behaviors that we know we need to change in order to operate differently together and on this planet. And so, yes, this type of collective action, it doesn't just happen haphazardly. People think about these things. And I think, yes, it absolutely has this power. We need to uh, have much deeper social intelligence to make some of these changes on the planet. How do you deal with fear personally? Well, one short answer is I just let myself feel it. Like I think it's normal. So if I have it, if, it, if I'm experiencing, I'm just, I don't tell too many stories about it. I'm like, I'm afraid because it's also a biological response. So I just acknowledge that my body or my brain is feeling scared about something and I just let it come up and I just say it. I'm like, I'm scared. And I don't need to, I don't get too hung up on it. That's one way. But then sometimes, you know, you're afraid, but you can't even really say it and it's influencing you. And this is the kind of fear that I've had to work with is the fear that's not even that obvious to you. When you're afraid and you're not completely clear that that's why you're behaving the way that you are, you're, that, you know, that you are actually operating from fear instead of like, oof, I'm afraid in this moment. I can handle that. I'm like, cool, you're scared, chill. But it's when you have some deeper fear and it's influencing your life and you haven't really seen it yet. And the best thing that I have learned over the years, I'm a really mental person. I'm a nerd. I love reading. I love ideas and thinking about how things work. Uh, so I, I needed to study martial arts because it was the only thing that helped me get clear and stay focused. And martial arts really helps me understand that like when I have fear, I have to go into it. And when I'm, and I'm, you know, when I'm noticing that I'm afraid or unfocused or unclear, I just have to like go for it with focus and clarity. 
So it helps me lean in, I guess, to fear. Do you feel like fear can be, um, can you use that energy in your art? Absolutely. I think artists do it all the time. It drives them consciously or unconsciously, you know? Uh, absolutely. I use it all the time, especially when I'm aware of it. Um, I can really feel when I'm afraid. And m the more I train myself in life to lean into that, the more it's a powerful ally in my art and in my organizing to be, all right, I'm afraid, but whatever's on the other side of that is actually better than right here. So I think that there's that too. Mm. This is your soapbox moment <laughs> to speak to the world about mm. anything. You can tell a story or an ism or a quote or speak your piece, have this moment. Something that I'm really inspired by right now is, is simplicity. Um, or maybe not even just simplicity, but just it really enjoying what is basic about life and being alive. I think with being able to be on the internet and seeing so much of the world or through television or traveling, it gets really complex. Our work gets really complex. How many hours we need to work, all of this stuff. It just, how we're supposed to be ambitious. And for me, this notion of ambition is something I'm really questioning. Why is ambition important? I think inspiration is beautiful. I think feeling vital is important. But I think this notion about needing to be ambitious and making something of yourself, you can get lost in this. You can really get lost in trying to make more of yourself. It's important for you to stand tall and to be dignified and to create what you want to create in this life. But being caught up in career and success and a lot of these things, it gets very confusing. And so recently I was just on this like stranded beach in Greece and there was nothing there but the sea and some fruit I had and my friends and lots of sunshine. And I spent many days like this over and over and over again, like living this very simple island life where the rhythm was very simple and it really changed my entire mind inside of the these couple of weeks of just participating I didn't have to answer any big questions not think about world politics it's not that I want to leave that but something deeper happened to me while I was in Greece where I think it's just important and I really encourage people to savor what is really valuable between us and to get excited and share that with the other people that you organize or make art with and ask people re really helps them come alive and be in service of that and really being in service not just of organizing to make big things or to be really successful but to really ask other human beings what helps them come alive and do your very best to support that. Because we build a lot of things that are useless. We build a lot of things that are in service to other people. And I think more often than not, we don't even ask each other what we need to build. 
or what's important. And so, and the question is so simple, but it's often not asked. What do we really need right now? So I guess I would just encourage that you have a good time asking that to other people because asking it is one of the nicest things you can do for your friends and your community. And keeping it simple and then seeing where it goes from there because it's a big spark usually and it's really fun. So yeah, ask people what they need and ask them what makes them come alive.